You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This has been a reading of the, a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Mystery of the Universe, The Human Being, Image of Creation, 16 lectures. This is lecture 16. And this book was formerly known as Man, Hieroglyph of the Universe. And now the last lecture. When we try to ascertain man's position within the whole universe, we need to turn our attention not only to space but also to time. Anyone who follows the history of human evolution a little will find that it is a peculiarity of the oriental conception of the universe to place an emphasis on space, not leaving time wholly disregarded, but placing everything pertaining to space in the foreground. The peculiarity of the western conception of the universe, in contrast, is to ascribe very special importance to time, and it is precisely this regard for the temporal in human evolution and the universe, which must have primary consideration in a right view of the Christ force. To recognize the full significance of the Christ force in human evolution on earth, we must be able to place man himself correctly into the whole universe in a temporal sense. Today's prevalent belief in the law of the conservation of energy, and particularly also that of the conservation of substance, hinders this. The law of the conservation of energy is one which would so place man in the universe that he stands there as a mere product of nature. Attempts have been made to discover the process of transformation through combustion of what man takes in as nourishment and to find out how the heat of this combustion and the rest of this strength and energy arise in man as transformed forces of food. Such experiments have already been undertaken with students. They bear some resemblance to the following. Someone sees a building, hears that it is a bank, and endeavors by some method to calculate how much money is put into the bank and how much taken out and finding that the amounts are the same, draws the conclusion that the money has either transformed itself in there or has remained the same, but that there are no officials in the bank at all. This is approximately the logic of the thought that whatever a person has eaten may be rediscovered in the transformed forces of his califaction, his activity. Here, too, courage is lacking, actually to put to the test the depth of thought underlying these modern principles. One might indeed arrive at many things by testing both the logic and more especially the reality of what we find in modern science. Now the point is that because of all these unreal and illogical methods of thought nowadays, man is placed in the dilemma in which, as I have already pointed out, We have ideals on the one hand as secondary effects and natural phenomena on the other, with no means of building a bridge between them. 
At most, such decadent chatterers in the sphere of philosophy as Eucken or Bergson try to talk of natural phenomena in a way which flatters the primitive thinking of people who do not want to deal with anything real or specific, but prefer to lap up the drivel which they are fed by such philosophers. What is of real consequence instead is first of all to ask oneself what man bears within him out of all the depths and breadths of the universe. What is there within him that enables him as part of the universe to work with his ego in such a way that one can see that what results from his activity is his own? Now of all things of the universe, of all properties of being in the universe, one such property is easier to study than others if one only sets aside the prejudices of modern science, and that is the element of heat. Certainly it must be said, in the first place, that even the animal world, and perhaps to some extent the plant world, have heat of their own. But the heat of the higher animal world and of man can be distinguished from other kinds of individual body heat. And it is necessary to inquire now into what may be called the heat peculiar to man. For in this particular heat, leaving aside for the moment that of the animal, although what I am saying does not contradict facts in the animal world, but it would lead us too far to include it in our present observations, in what we possess as our own heat, and in what separates itself off from all other universal warmth as our own warmth organism, we have our inmost corporeality, our inmost bodily field of activity. We are unaware of this because it escapes ordinary observation that the element of soul and spirit dwelling in us finds its immediate continuation in the effect it has on the heat within us. In speaking of our bodily nature, we should really speak of our heat body When we see someone before us, we also have an enclosed heat space before us, which is at a higher temperature than its environment. In this increased temperature lives our soul and spirit element, and the soul and spirit in us is indirectly conveyed by means of the heat to our other organs. In this way, too, our will comes into being. The will comes into being through the fact that in the first instance an influence is exerted upon the warmth or heat within us, then in turn on our lung organization, from there on our fluid organization, and only then on what is mineral or solid in our organism. Thus the human organization must be represented as follows. The first part to be acted upon is the heat, Then, through heat, air is affected. From there an influence acts upon the water, the fluid organism, and thence upon our solid organization. I have previously mentioned the fact that the solid part of man's organization is the least, for his body consists of more than 75% fluid. This fact, that we really live and move in our heat or warmth element, is one of the physiological facts which we must keep carefully in mind. For we must not simply regard what forms an enclosed heat space as though it were just a space of pure uniform heat 
having a higher temperature than the environment. No, we must regard it as having differentiated parts, warmer and colder. Just as our liver, lungs and so forth differ from each other, so do the parts of our heat organism. And this differentiation is continually changing inwardly. It is a constantly moving differentiation. And what, in the first instance, unites with the activity of the soul and spirit has its being in this inner heat organization. Philosophers today say that the effect of the soul and spirit upon the body cannot be perceived because they imagine an arm as a sort of solid lever appliance. And, of course, they cannot see how the activity of the soul and spirit, which is conceived of as abstractly as possible, can be transmitted to this solid lever appliance. But one needs only fix one's attention on the transition points, where one realm meets another, and we find there how man's organism is organized in harmony with the whole universe. If we study the idea of the human being in a real way, we find that the thinking which asserts itself in our head has very much to do with this inner activity that goes on within conditions of heat and warmth. Parenthesis, this is not quite exact, but the inaccuracy can perhaps only be corrected in the course of time. We must gradually try to get a complete picture. Therefore, I will begin with a more cursory description. Close parenthesis. If we observe this interworking of thoughts in the heat space, in the enclosed heat space, it is evident that something like a cooperation of thought activity and heat activity takes place. In what does this consist? Here we come to something which demands very careful consideration. Taking first the whole of the rest of man and then his head, we can, of course, trace metabolism from the former to the latter, and the fact that ultimately the head has to do with thinking can be sensed as a direct experience. Yet what really happens here? We will lead up to this gradually and eventually arrive at a fitting picture of what happens. Let us suppose we have some fluid substance. We bring it to boiling point. Then it evaporates and changes into a more rarefied substance. This same process takes place far more intensely with human thinking, whose effect on metabolism in the human head is to make all substance fall away like a sediment and be expelled, so that nothing remains of it but mere picture. I will now use another image to make things clear. Suppose you have a vessel containing a solution. This you cool down, which is again a heat process. A sediment collects below and above remains finer liquid. This is also the case with the human head. Only here no substance whatever is collected above, nothing but pictures. All matter is expelled. This is the activity of the human head. It forms what are mere pictures and expels what is matter. This process, as a matter of fact, takes place in everything that may be called our transition to pure thinking. All material substance that has been active in our inner life falls back into the organism, as it were, and pictures alone remain. It is a fact that when we rise to pure thoughts, we live in pictures. 
Our soul lives in pictures, and these pictures are the remains of all that has gone before. Not the substance, but the pictures remain. What I have described to you can be followed right into the thoughts themselves, for this process only takes place at the moment when thoughts change into nothing but pictures. At first, thoughts live, as it were, in corporeal and embodied form. They are permeated by substance. But as pictures, they separate themselves out from this substance. If, however, we go to work in a truly spiritually scientific way, we can quite easily distinguish pure thought, sense-free thought, that has separated itself out from the material process, from all thoughts belonging to what I have called in these lectures the, quote, instinctive wisdom of the ancients, close quote. The nature of this instinctive wisdom of the ancients was such that it did not filter out matter in this way. This filtering away of all matter and substance is a result of human evolution. Although not, not observed by external physiology, it is a fact that generally, of course generally and approximately, the thinking of earthly humanity before the mystery of Golgotha was always united with matter, and that at the time when the mystery of Golgotha intervened in the life and evolution of the earth, humanity had evolved to a point where it could separate out matter from the inner process of thought. Matter-free thought became possible. Please don't think this is unimportant. It is actually one of the most important things of all that man in his evolution has become free from corporeal thinking, that thoughts have changed to pure pictures. Thus we may say that up to the time of the mystery of Golgotha, bodily pictures lived in man. But after the mystery of Golgotha, matter-free pictures lived in man. Before the mystery of Golgotha, the universe worked upon man in such a way that he could not attain to pictures free of the body, free of matter. Since the mystery of Golgotha, the universe has, as it were, withdrawn. Man has been transposed to an existence which only takes place in pictures. The connection man sensed with the universe before the mystery of Golgotha he also related to the universe. He related human life on earth to heaven. We can observe this in quite precise terms. In ancient Hebrew culture, people were clearly and distinctly conscious that the twelve tribes of old Israel were projections on earth of the constellations of the zodiac. The twelve-foldness of the universe comes to expression in the life of man. And we may say that in those days the life of man was pictured as a consequence of the twelve-foldness of the heavens, of the zodiac. All human beings felt the starry heavens streaming into them. And they felt this above all as a group, as a community of people into whom the starry heavens raid. In the evolution of Hebrew antiquity, we must go back to the time when we are told of the twelve sons of Jacob as the projection on earth of the twelve regions of heaven. Just as within Hebrew evolution there was this instreaming of heavenly forces upon man on earth in the dim mists of antiquity, so we find a similar thing in Europe at a later time, since in the different parts of the globe 
evolution comes about at different times. We must go back to the Middle Ages and study the legends of King Arthur in his round table, those significant Celtic legends. For Central Europe evolved later to the stage reached by the old Hebrews thousands of years before. Central Europe only reached this stage at the time to which the legends of Arthur and his round table refer. There was, however, a difference. Hebrew antiquity evolved to the point where this in-streaming from the universe still yielded corporeal or matter-imbued pictures. Then came the point of time when the body withdrew from such pictures, when the pictures had to be given a new substantiality. There was indeed a danger that man's soul life would pass completely into a life of pictures or images. People did not immediately recognize this danger. Even Descartes was still floundering, and instead of saying, quote, I think, therefore I am not, close quote, he said the opposite of the truth, quote, I think, therefore I am, close quote. for when we live in pictures, we really are not. When we live in mere thoughts, it is the surest sign that we are not. Thoughts must be filled with substantiality. In order that man might not continue to live in mere pictures, in order that inner substantiality might once more exist in the human being, that being intervened who entered through the mystery of Golgotha. Hebrew antiquity was the first to meet with this intervention of the central force, which was now to give back reality to the human soul that had become picture. This, however, was not at once understood. In the Middle Ages we have the last echoes of this, in the Twelve, around King Arthur's table. But this was soon replaced by something else, the Parsifal legend, which contrasts one man with the Twelve, one man who develops twelve-foldness out of his own inner center or core. Thus, in contrast to that first picture, and there's a diagram, which was essentially the grail picture, must be set the Parsifal picture, in which what man now possesses within him rays out from the center. The endeavor of those in the Middle Ages who wished to understand Parsifal, who wished to make the Parsifal striving active in the human soul, was to introduce true substantiality, real inner being into the image life that could crystallize out in man after all materiality had filtered away. Whereas the grail legend still shows the in-streaming from without, the Parsifal figure is now set against this, raying out from the center into mere pictures the inner life that can restore reality to them. Let me read that sentence again. Whereas the Grail legend still shows the in-streaming from without, the Parsifal figure is now set against this, raying out from the center into mere pictures the inner life that can restore reality to them. The Parsifal legend thus represented the striving of humanity in the Middle Ages to find the way to the Christ within. It represents an instinctive striving to understand what lives as the Christ in the evolution of humanity. If one studies inwardly what was experienced in this figure of Parsifal and compares it 
with what is to be found in creeds and faiths, one receives a strong impulse toward what needs to happen today. People are now satisfied with the mere husk of the word Christ and believe that they thus possess Christ, whereas even the theologians themselves do not possess him, but remain at the level of more superficial external interpretation and exegesis. In the Middle Ages there was still so much direct consciousness left that by comprehending the representative of humanity, Parsifal, people were able to rest their way upward to the figure of Christ. If we reflect on this, we also gain an impression of man's place in the whole universe. Throughout the world of nature, conversion and transmutation of forces and energy prevails. In man alone, matter is cast out by pure thought. That matter which is actually cast out of the human being by pure thought is also annihilated. It passes into nothingness. In man, therefore, is a place in the universe where matter ceases to exist. If we reflect upon this, we must think of all earth existence as follows. Here is the earth, and on the earth, man. Into man passes matter. Everywhere else it is transmuted, transformed. In man it is annihilated. The material earth will pass away as matter is gradually destroyed by man. When some day all the substance of the earth will have passed through the human organism, being used there for thinking, the earth will cease to be a planetary body. And what man will have gained from this earth will be pictures. These, however, will have a new reality. They will preserve a primal reality. This reality is the one proceeding from the central force which entered human evolution through the mystery of Golgotha. Looking toward the end of our earth, therefore, what do we see? The end of the earth will come when all its substance is destroyed as described above. Man will then possess pictures of all that has taken place in earthly evolution. At the end of earth evolution, the earth would, without the mystery of Golgotha, have been absorbed back into the universe, and there would remain merely pictures without reality. What makes them real, however, is the fact of the mystery of Golgotha having been there within human evolution, giving these pictures inner reality for the life to come. Through the mystery of Golgotha, a new beginning becomes possible for the earth's future existence. From this we can see that what is contained in our stream of evolution is not to be regarded merely as a continuous stream, where one thing is always related to another as effect to cause. Instead, we must recognize in the first place a pre-Christian evolution, which gave rise to all that people were able to think at that time, for what they were able then to think was contained in the Father God, was imparted to the earth through Him. The nature and work of the Father God, however, was such that what He created as earth evolution was given over to decline and death, to what passes away. A new beginning was made with the mystery of Golgotha. Of all that went before, only pictures were to remain.
as it were descriptive paintings of the world. These pictures were, however, to receive new reality through what entered as being into earth evolution through the mystery of Golgotha. That is the cosmic significance of the mystery of Golgotha. That is what I meant years ago when I said Christianity will not be understood until it has penetrated into all our knowledge, right down into the realm of physics, until we understand how even in physical things Christ's substantiality works within world existence. We have not grasped Christianity until we can say to ourselves, precisely in the domain of heat, a change is taking place in man which results in matter being destroyed and a purely picture existence arising out of the matter. But through the union of the human soul with the Christ substance, this picture existence becomes a new reality. If we compare this thought, that of the interweaving of what man has transformed into soul and spirit with physical existence, if we compare this whole conception with the cheerless scientific thoughts of modern times, which can only lead us down a blind alley, we shall see its great and deep significance, and we shall see how we should regard laws like those presented by Julius Robert Mayer, which in fact describe what falls away from cosmic existence, even as ice and snow melt before the sun. Man, however, retains the pictures, and they derive a reality for the future, because a new substance has entered them, the substance which passed through the mystery of Golgotha. At the same time, this provides the basis for man's idea of freedom and can be linked with scientific thinking, not when we speak of conversion of matter and energy, but of the fact that matter and energy have a temporal life allotted to them. We do not participate only in the evolving material universe, but in its decay too. And we are now in the process of raising ourselves out of it to mere picture existence and then permeating ourselves with what we can only devote ourselves to in free will, the Christ being. For he so stands in human evolution that man's connection with him can only be a free one. Anyone who seeks to be compelled to recognize Christ cannot find his kingdom. He can come only to the universal Father God, who, however, in our world has now only a share in a decaying world, and precisely on account of this decay and decline has sent the Son. A spiritual view of the world must unite with a natural physical worldview, but they must unite in man and through a free deed. Hence we can only say of anyone who wishes to prove freedom that he is still adopting an ancient pagan point of view. All proofs of freedom fail. Our task is not to prove freedom, but to take hold of it. We take hold of it when we understand the nature of sense-free thinking. Sense-free thinking, however, needs to establish a connection with the world again. And it does not find this unless it unites with what has entered the evolution of the world as new substance through the mystery of Golgotha. Thus the bridge between a natural and moral worldview lies in a right understanding of Christianity. It might at first appear very strange 
that the very ones who promulgate modern creeds, or rather ancient ones that extend their influence into modern life, do not desire a science leading toward Christianity, but desire a science as materialistic as possible, so that an unscientific faith may hold its own alongside it. In this sense we can see that modern materialism and reactionary Christianity are very closely related, for the latter has driven mankind into the conception that things spiritual must not be penetrated by true knowledge. Knowledge must be kept free from the spiritual, must be kept away from it, must extend only to the material. Thus, on the one hand, we have the advocate of one or other creed, who says that science relates only to what is sense-perceptible, and that all else must be grasped by faith alone. On the other hand, we have the materialist, who says that science relates only to what is sense-perceptible, and that faith has no place. Spiritual science is not related to materialism. Modern creeds, on the other hand, which are ancient ones in new clothing, are very closely related to it indeed. I think I have now shown how the possibility of permeating moral law with what we can know of nature, and conversely of permeating knowledge of nature with moral law, is bound up with spiritual science. For the phantom which external science nowadays presents as man, that illusory picture which shows man as a configuration of mineral substance, simply does not exist. Man is just as much a fluid as a solid organism. He is also an air organism, and above all, one of heat. When we come to the level of heat, we find the transition to our soul and spirit. For in heat we already encounter the transition from space to time. And the element of soul flows in the temporal. Through heat we pass more and more from space into time, and it becomes possible by the roundabout way I have touched on here to seek the moral in the physical. Indeed, it might be said that one who thinks short-sightedly will scarcely arrive at the connection of the moral with the physical in human nature, for one can certainly live as a miscreant without any apparent physical repercussions, remaining a well-formed human being. Yet people do not investigate such a person's heat condition, which is changed far more subtly and delicately than is supposed, and works back upon what man carries through death. Today people generally look upward into abstraction. We have our thoughts up there, and we look down into the physical material. But we do not find the transitionary sphere unless we recognize the inwardly stirring heat or warmth lying between these, which has, at least for human instinct, a physical as well as a soul aspect. We can develop warmth for our fellows morally, soul warmth, which is the counterpart of physical warmth. This soul warmth, however, does not arise through a physical change in the sense of Julius Robert Mayer's theory. It arises, but how does it arise? I might say that here it gives palpable evidence of itself. Why do we speak of warm feelings? 
because we feel we experience that the feeling we call warm is an image of outer physical warmth. Warmth percolates into the image. And what is only soul warmth today will in future cosmic existence play a physical part, for the Christ impulse will live therein. What today is simply picture warmth in our world of feeling will live, become physical when earthly warmth has disappeared in what is Christ substance, Christ nature. Let us try to find that delicate connection between external physical warmth and what we instinctively call warmth of feeling. Let us try to find it. And then let us go to what Goethe said in his color theory in the chapter called the material moral effects of color. Let us see how in his color perception he places the cooling colors on one side and the warming colors on the other, how he links the material moral with physical conditions, which can to a certain extent be measured with a thermoscope, and shows how the element of soul interplays with what is external and physical. Then we arrive at one aspect of how a moral view of the world can be linked with a physical one. The Jesuits, of course, hate this kind of interplay. Therefore, even the best book on Goethe, written from the Jesuit perspective, is a poisonous book, a terrible book, though much more ingenious and effective than anything written about him elsewhere, because written with inner Jesuitical rhetoric. I refer to the three-volume work on Goethe by Father Baumgartner, It is full of spite and malice, but it is both powerful and effective. We may be very sure that in that world of which many people have no conception, a world which opposes us too, Goethe is better known than he is among academic circles. Those who appreciate Goethe and bring positive estimation to bear on their understanding of him form but a small community. There is a large community of those who hate him. We have no conception of how large. Some time ago I pointed out how little awake people are to what lives among us. I once said I would have liked to make a count of all those who knew Weber's titled Thirteen Lime Trees, a work of positive Roman Catholicism. I should like to know how many of us have read it. Very few, I'm sure. Yet soon after publication this work ran through hundreds of editions. Have those who desire to help humanity progress any idea in their waking consciousness of the widespread effect of these things? That they have a widespread widespread effect is certain, and it is through all such things that the struggle against us proceeds. And while we have a small group of Goethe adherents, which is, however, unable to point to anything of importance from Goethe's wisdom, the Jesuit book on Goethe is written with great cleverness and acumen, a very clever and influential book. And that is precisely what we need, to be filled with spirit that is awake. Spiritual science will surely succeed if a wakeful spiritual life really takes root among us. That at the end of Lecture 16 and the end of the collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Mystery of the Universe, The Human Being, Image of Creation, formerly known as Man Hieroglyph of the Universe.